1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it.
2: In 1919, a man named Olor Magi died of tuberculosis in London in deep poverty. He had arrived a decade and a half before in the imperial capital, bearing a different name seeking education, fame, and fortune that he could not find in the provincial corner from which he had arisen. Some of those things he had found, but he had found much more hardship than he probably expected or desired. This is the story told by Daniel Jones in An African in Imperial London, The Indomitable Life of A.B.C. Merriman Labor, a meticulously researched book about an obscure life which like a small window opens upon an interesting view. Daniel, welcome to Historically Thinking.
3: Thank you, Al. I am so delighted to be here.
2: Well, this uh is clear is a labor of love. Um it's meticulously researched um and we'll get to that eventually. But we should. I should. We should start by saying it's A B C Merriman hyphen Labor is the name of this man, Augustus Merriman Labor. Correct. And he is from Sierra, yes. Sierra Leone, which is, as I've been thinking about the book, is more important than London in the story. Even though the whole your story is all set in London, Sierra Leone is in some ways more important. um, that's my that's my that's my you know thesis of the case but uh you're welcome to disagree but it, it, we do have to explain sierra leone uh first and where he came from so why don't you why don't we start with that
3: yes and i think people will be surprised about the history of sierra leone i found it utterly fascinating because it is a british colony settled by people who were formerly enslaved. So after the American Revolution, people who had fought with the British uh, escaped, uh, some of them to London, and were trying to make a life there. And in the late 18th century, abolitionists uh, were concerned about their inability to succeed in London, and came up with this plan to help them settle in Sierra Leone. So in in fact, I
2: I know a a number of Formerly enslaved Virginians, including some of Thomas Jefferson's uh, former slaves, uh, uh-huh. were in Sierra Leone, um, and indeed, one of a person that Patrick Henry uh, once enslaved led a tax revolt in the 1790s against the wow. colonial government. Yeah, Cassandra Pybus uh, yes. has written a book about this based on her research and the what the. Uh, British army called the book of negroes all the um formerly enslaved people that they refused to tur- turn back to the united states in 1783 so right. yeah
3: so there really is this connection a sad connection but a connection to the united to america to yeah. the united states yeah absolutely so in the late Um, 18th century, we see these people coming from England, but also from North America and the Caribbean to West Africa to begin these new lives of of freedom in Sierra Leone. And then in the early 19th century, when the British abolished the slave trade, they took Freetown Sierra Leone as kind of their central location for going after slave ships from other countries, capturing them, putting the slavers on trial, and then uh, liberating the people on board those ships, and they would liberate them and uh, into Freetown. And this was particularly important to Merriman Labor because his great grandfather was among those liberated. So the story of the British Navy and of British justice was central to Merriman Labor's really deep faith in British justice. Um, and I think what's so fascinating about Sierra Leone is you start have you have this world in Freetown made. Of people from all over, from you know people who'd lived, who'd been anglicized in England and America, and people who were from many different um, peoples uh, from Africa, coming together in Freetown, and they create this really unique and uh, interesting uh, people who they who became known as Creoles, K-R-I-O-S. K-R-I-O, uh, Yes, mm-hmm. and by the middle of the 19th century, they were um, the well-to-do Creoles. were, you know, they wore British clothes, they worshipped a British god, they enjoyed a British education, but they still were maintaining important rituals and beliefs of their homeland. So they really developed this just. R- rich hybrid culture. And this is the world that Merriman labor grew up in.
2: Yeah. And it, it's fair to say, as you describe it, that these creos are um, to put it mildly Anglophiles. Um, yeah, absolutely. They, yes. They perhaps believe more in the British system of government. Uh, it, to, I mean, it, it, <laughs> I was thinking in, in a certain way, um, whether or not English and Scots and Welsh and Irish would acknowledge it. Uh, these Creos see themselves as British. There's a, a yes, certain Absolutely. Way, yeah, there's a certain way they're framing their external identity as British. Uh, he comes to yeah, London it, as a Briton in a very interesting way.
3: Yes, and very much so. But I th- I'd also want to um, emphasize, too, that they did not completely discard their African traditions or identity. So with Merriman Labor and with the Creole people, you see um, these multiple. Identities functioning together, um, and I think that they, and I think that they, many Creoles were proud of being British subjects. They saw it as a way of being modern, mm-hmm. um, being modern people in the world, um, knowing about having a kind of knowledge that was powerful and being part of this very powerful empire. At the same time they were quite aware of the injustices of the colonial world in which they lived. Um, for example, you know, not just kind of casual racism, but these are very uh, ambitious people and they were uh, in Sierra Leone, Merriman labor and his, and the people he knew, they might have – people he knew might have very prestigious professional degrees that they got in England or Scotland, but they were prevented from reaching the upper echelons of the medical, legal, and civil um, worlds there. Mm-hmm. So they were critical of empire. At the same time, they um, they really valued being part of this something larger than themselves, a kind of larger narrative yes. that made them important in the world. No,
2: that's what's so interesting and so I- – Cool, if it's a banal word to use, but it's, it's, they have a very nuanced and, um, it's a very provincial place, Freetown. They, ha- and these people have a very, also have a very cosmopolitan view of things. Uh, and by that I mean they, they see many things at the same time. Um, they don't,
3: hey, yes. Yeah. Go on. Well, and also I think this, um, and when you said Sierra Leone is so important, I think it's true too because, It also had a very vibrant literary scene there. Yeah, really Um, striking how
2: vibrant it was. Really interesting.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the books that, you know, you could get in England, you could get in Sierra Leone. I mean, they had booksellers that... Got the bestsellers, got all the important books. Uh, There was a public library. There were many social and literary clubs that Merriman Labour took part in. And of course, he received the kind of education that a typical British schoolboy would. He studied Greek and Latin and mathematics as well, of course, as British literature and British history. He did complain, though. He goes, why am I learning all of this British history and nothing about African history? Mm -hmm. So he appreciated and he used that British education, but he also saw its gaps in teaching him about uh, the African world, African language, African history, of which he was very proud.
2: The – one of the the things that really struck me is it was it's like reading about Reconstruction America and the passion for education is part of this, uh, the passion for education that the Creos have, and for learning and reading and so on, um, and they're also part of. You mentioned a couple of people who are part of uh, as were. An extended black renaissance um they're in correspondence with people in i think wilberforce in ohio uh you know wb du bois um they're in with people like that who are sort of rise they're part of a rising intellectual group of of course i can't call them african-americans but uh africans and (laughs) african-americans and you know anglo-africans across the entire atlantic
3: yeah, he was definitely in tune with the whole kind of pan-Africanism that yeah. was happening at the time. And some of your listeners um may be familiar with uh, Edward Blyden. He was uh Merriman Labor knew him. He became quite he became he lived in Sierra Leone, he was from the Caribbean, but a famous kind of uh thinker uh during that period. Um Merriman Labor is, you know, well aware of, you know, uh, the writings of Booker T. Washington, of um, W.B. Du Bois, you know, he he knows what's going on. This is a world where people are reading and talking.
2: Yeah, it's uh, one of the, you know, the interesting things about this, this uh, in his vision uh, of himself and we'll get to in just a moment is I was thinking um, I've heard it said that this Edwardian period, it's the best time to be a writer in the history of the human. Ra- this is a newly literate population. Uh, you finally got lots of people know how to read. And there is, there's no radio. There's no movie. Uh, this, people are frantic to read anything. And so, there are endless books, magazines, journals to supply their ravenous need just prior to the advent of any kind of electric, electronic, not even electronic, electric medium.
3: Yes, I think that's an excellent observation. It is a wonderful time. Lots of people are reading, and Merriman Labour, his desire to go to London really is about making a name for himself as a writer there at the center of empire where he can prove, because this is something that's really important to him, that um, black people, that Africans are equal to white people, and he can do that through language, through yeah. prove himself, through – with his artistry, with the written word, uh, through his talent. So that becomes key because he um, – by the time he goes to London, he was well-known on the west coast of Africa as a writer. He'd written a pamphlet in 1898 about a recent African uprising that caused a sensation. So he was already known as a, um, as a kind of talented uh, writer – Upcoming writer that people were keeping their eye on in West Africa.
2: So he could have stayed. I mean, Blyden. After I mean, there were people who stayed in Sierra Leone that had impact, but he uh, he's doing very well for himself um, in the civil service in Freetown. Um, he's in a very secure position. He wants to go to London. You think primarily in order to establish himself as a internationally known or writer? Yes. That's really the ambition there.
3: I think so. I mean, he goes and within a month he signed up for law school. But my interpretation of that is really that's to please his family. Uh, To have a son who's a barrister in Freetown is – gives you a lot of status and so he – He And also, I mean, it would give him status. Also, it would give him a kind of voice. I mean, there's lots of benefits of being Mm -hmm. a barrister, but that was not his passion. And when he gets to law school, he's not in law school very long before he's, to be honest with you, kind of bored with it. He Mm -hmm. finds the studies dry as dust, he says. Mm -hmm. And it also is not systematic. The education is not particularly systematic all you have to do is uh pass the exams and um do uh and keep terms so at the inns of court uh in london where the law schools there you had to have so many dinners every semester which means you went to the great <laughs> hall with all the other students and faculty and you eat dinner together and uh, the barristers felt this was creating a legal community and a culture and they highly valued it he did not value it at all um and it was truly uh literature that we love we see that through his life and uh although he ultimately did pass the bar and um uh, he did pass his exams and was called to the bar so he did uh, succeed in law school ultimately but um it wasn't his passion
2: mm-hmm. um the of course what's what is his passion? Is London. So, what does he see there? What is his London like? You're you're very evocative and poetic about his London, the London of what year is it when he goes when he first when he first arrives? Nineteen. He arrives
3: in nineteen oh four. Yeah, mm-hmm. so he arrives in nineteen oh four. So, what does he see in and in, 1904- in London? Okay. So I think one thing to keep in mind is when he leaves Freetown, it has not quite 35,000 people. Hmm. And the London he's entering is the biggest city in the world, uh, home of six million people. And at this time, it's famous for its traffic, for its fog, for its powerful financial center, and uh, I like to emphasize for its pickpockets. Hmm. He admired – The city's architecture, its art and culture. He admired the judicial system and the technology of London, the electric trams and the powerful printing presses and this vast railroad system. But he was completely shocked by the incredible poverty he saw side by side with opulence. Um, One of the most telling things he describes is seeing an emaciated woman on a street corner. She's holding an infant in her arms. She has a big, dirty card pinned to her tattered blouse, and it reads, Kind friend, have pity. I am the mother of 18, all starving. When he writes of London, he is not shy about talking about these kinds of things, right? He's not, he's not, he doesn't look at London through rose colored spectacles. No. He looks at it, what it really is. And he tries to balance as he's describing it, both its wonders and its greatness and also its deficiencies. Mm
2: -hmm. It's kaleidoscopic. It spins around him. It's, it's, it's various and it's various and, you know, and, and splendid and terrible and everything all at once.
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, I haven't lived in a really small town, um, but I think that when you come from a place of 35,000 into a huge metropolis, you must also feel a sense of freedom, right? Everybody knew him in Freetown, or lots of people did. Um, In London, you know, he has the freedom to reinvent himself, to um, be somewhat, um, anonymous, uh, you know there weren't a lot of black people in London, but there were probably ten thousand or so. Hmm. So he would not have been a completely unique spectacle. There were uh, all kinds of people working in all kinds of all kinds of African or people of African descent working in all kinds of professions in London at the time. So I think there was a kind of freedom there that he he relished.
2: No, it's it's definitely it reminds me of a uh, 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 story of uh, I don't know uh, Theodore Dreiser or Ohen or. Something. Someone coming to New York from a Midwestern small town. Uh, there's there's yes. for, and at the same time for the same reason, um, because this is the one moment in history where saying I'm going to London or New York to be a writer isn't what you can actually you could actually do it. I mean, its it, it was potentially yeah. possible to do that if you could meet deadlines and uh, turn out right. cl- clean copy. Um, it, so he, does he does he have much success as a writer at first?
3: You know, interestingly, he his success as a writer is really as a travel writer mm-hmm. because what he does is write a series of articles for the Sierra Leone Weekly News. And these are about his experiences in London. So he was modeling himself. He's called, he gets, he is called in an African newspaper, the Negro Mark Twain. Huh. And you might remember that Twain really starts his career as a travel writer. Yeah. So I think at first he's really imagining himself uh, in that role and as the observer, uh, as the social commentator who kind of moves around in this new world and describes it for the people back home. He doesn't because he's in law school at the same time. He's not really pursuing that many opportunities in in um, with London uh, um, journals, but he does publish a couple articles in a couple of um, uh, uh, newspapers about Africa. Usually, talking about African trade and African subjects.
2: He um, seems also to have been very uh, dazzled by the prospects of commerce. Is that is that right or the? Absolutely. Yeah. Can you describe that a little bit? Because I, yes, I was struck absolutely. by that. Yes, absolutely.
3: Well, I think one thing that really bothered him, as part of the imperial, being part of this large imperial world, is that African natural resources were extracted from the continent and then taken to Europe where they were manufactured or made into something. And that's where the money was, right, in the yeah. manufacturing. The Africans were not getting rich on selling their natural um on their product, on their natural resources. So what he imagined was helping uh, African people uh, cooperate together uh, in buying and selling, so they could generate enough capital to develop, to develop their own uh, manufacturing and agricultural industri- industries. I, I was struck so by that. Do he, this,
2: he doesn't become part of the socialist yeah. party. Uh, He doesn't become part of the Fabian labor movement. He decides to set up a, a better, he decides to build a better mousetrap. He decides to set up this, what, this African general agency
3: exactly the african general agency and he's going to be sort of the african at the center you know at the heart of empire helping other africans or really people of color throughout the world because he ends up really with this global clientele um helping them get their best prices uh for their for what they're buying get the best prices for what they uh are selling and so in this way Because he comes to – I mean, you know, Edwardian London, it's just all – everything's all about money, right? And he realizes this and he realizes the only way that that Africans are going to succeed is if they have money. And so he gets uh, determined to try to create systems for Africans to be in control of their own natural resources and um, develop their own uh, uh, um, industries so they'll be able to compete with Europeans.
2: And is this a success? I I, I was trying to figure out how, if his books were balanced or was he, was he, was this profitable uh,
3: for as long as he, yeah, it was, yeah, it was profitable. Didn't generate huge profits. Um, He did have a lot of clients, as I said, from all over the world. He made enough money to live in London, which was an expensive city at the time. Mm -hmm. He also made enough money to travel. He, Um, took trips to London and Ireland and, uh, throughout the UK. And so he really was able to stay afloat while doing the African general agency and, you know, new businesses, um, you know, even today, a lot of them fail. So he was on the road to success with the African general agency.
2: So how many many years had he been doing it? Was it a year?
3: Uh, yeah, a year or two. Yeah.
2: Uh, And then, and then this, the, Really, a calamity. I think the great calamity of his life, right, um, is the, absolutely is Lincoln's Inn, The sort of um, the sort of uh, quasi guild slash club of uh, one of them you know, of, of lawyers in London, uh, and pronounces to him that uh, lawyers are not allowed to be involved in trade. Um, lawyers are gentlemen. Gentlemen are not involved in trade. You must therefore what.
3: He had to choose either leave law school or close down the African General Agency, and the African General Agency is his only income. He tried to get uh, work as a clerk earlier, but it was impossible. Um, the the clerk uh, field was um, highly highly competitive, and as a later report discovered, there was definitely prejudice against. Uh, colonial people working as clerks in in, uh, London. So he had to make this choice, and it was the calamity of his life. He chose law school rather than the African General Agency. Why? I think it's because it was so important for his status in Sierra Leone to be a barrister. Uh It was so important to his family that – he wanted to bring that honor to his family. He felt that obligation deeply, and so he made the decision for law school rather than the African General Agency. Hmm.
2: So he has to shut it down. He loses money in the process. Um, he, as you, you said earlier, he gets his. He passes the bar. He's a lawyer. So then, like now, what? Um, he's not really interested in practicing um, in in London. Is he?
3: Um, No, he's not particularly interested. Something happens before that. So when he closes down the African-British agency, he um, doesn't have the money to get called to the bar because law school costs a lot of money. So he goes on this um, tour of Africa. Um, It ends up being a 15,000-mile tour around Africa giving a lecture, and he talks in – Courthouses, church basements, schoolrooms all over the continent. And he gives this lecture he calls five years with the white man. And of (laughs) course, anybody coming to that talk would have instantly recognized it as a send up of popular European books about Africa with titles like three years in savage Africa. Yeah. Um, so, and it got a great reception. So he made money there. He's kind of back on his feet again and he returns to London um, and then is thinking, okay, this did really well. I'm going to turn this into a book and this is what's going to, what's going to make my name so in, in the UK.
2: He really had done the Mark Twain trajectory. Uh, when you think yeah. about it, he had done the travel articles. He had done the lecture tour, describing his sojourns sojourns amongst the wildest white people. Um, and Right, exactly. Um, he had done a remarkable job. So now he decides he's going to turn this into a book. Correct. And that becomes, what, Britain's Through Negro Spectacles. Although I, I really wish he had got stuck with five years with a white man. But, um, that I know, been, I do too. <laughs> that would have been <laughs> <laughs> among the whites. He might have been a...
3: Yeah, he might have been afraid because, you know, Brent's through Negro Spectacles. He's really pitching it to white audiences as well as his African audiences. So yeah. I think that's the uh, more subdued, the reason for the more subdued, t- less comical title, less ironic title.
2: Yeah. So he, he works out. How long does it take him to put it write it?
3: You know, it's a little bit unclear when he gets back from Africa. Um but he has the it probably he probably he revises the lectures into the book probably somewhere three to six months, oh. um, and then brings it out in the late summer of 1909.
2: And then nothing.
3: <laughs> well, surprisingly, he was he did a good job promoting it because mm-hmm. there are reviews in uh oh, a dozen or more quite substantial journals of the day. Um, Most of them are a paragraph. Um, Most of them are, you know, no, I'd say half of them are sort of mildly favorable, uh, but they don't really get the book at all. Um, One reviewer does actually understand what's happening in the book, but then there were um, several shockingly virulent yeah. <laughs> responses I w- to it.
2: I was surprised to see the conservative journal outlook thought it was a good book and that it was, uh, it was good to be laughed at or looked at from a different perspective because this is a humorous right. book, right?
3: Yes, exactly exactly but um, he does make fun of lawyers so as you might expect uh, the law journal did not uh, have <laughs> much good to say about it they said it lacked in genuine humor it was insulting and uh, valueless oh, but then you know probably the worst and and harshest review was from the you know, hugely popular Daily Express um, Mm -hmm. that basically summed it up as nothing but uh, low jests, they said, uh, from a crude pen. Um, And then I think what must have been especially shocking to him, it was essentially blacklisted in South Africa um, by a black newspaper editor. Hmm. So who, who basically thought that his gentle mockery of British culture was inflammatory, and he prevented Prevented it from being circulated. So the um, that kind of review in South Africa and the sort of not, you know, terrific attention in the UK, it was, um, you know, made it a failure. And of course, plunged. He had invested a lot of money in publishing it and promoting it, and it plunged him again into poverty.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? a real POS. You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: The, um, it, it's uh, really striking to me that, um, that, that, there's so many sober-minded um, people who thought, mm, "Well, this is this is improper. He should be doing so serious social science." This is the way that we, we we deal with this. It was uh, I was kind of very struck by that. Um, not a lot of sense of humor in the in the, amongst his reviewers.
3: Yes, and particularly you see that with his African reviewers.
2: Exactly.
1: Yes,
3: they. Yeah, they are very um upset that he has chosen what they consider this vulgar comedy to make serious points. And I think one thing we have to keep in mind that he and his contemporaries, you know, he was born in eighteen seventy seven. You know, they are inheriting they grow up in a Victorian world. And Merriman Labour goes to London and he he's realizing he's in a modern world and he wants to attract wide audiences. He's a huge fan of the music hall. Mm-hmm. And I think that Britain's through Negro spectacles is very influenced by the kind of humor he heard in the music halls. These, you know, quick use of language, these, uh, slightly risque kind of jokes, mm-hmm. a lot of satire. Um, and I think he really, that really influenced his writing and his, the way he was thinking about the kind of jokes he could make it, and people in Africa wanted – felt this was a serious subject that deserved serious uh, – a serious approach.
2: It uh, it really is interesting how you see in, in things like, for example, his um, love and the influence of – his love of musicals as influence upon him. You see the connection to people like Kipling or T.S. Eliot. I mean that you wouldn't otherwise make, but uh, it's just really extraordinary how this this one person he also has all these he you can see all these influences working on him as well as they are exactly. working on other people. Yeah,
3: um, exactly. What do yes. you think
2: of the book? I mean, I I, I didn't read it. You've read it. Um, is it good? Does it stand up?
3: I think it really does. It has been. Um, really pretty much forgotten, except by a handful of scholars for about 100 years. Yeah, But it's what made me curious about him and wanted to know who he was. It is a cheeky portrait of London and its people uh, in the year 1909. I think it's full of good humor, but at the same time, very shrewd observations about uh, race and racism. And one of the key strategies he uses in this book is simply to reverse the Eurocentric View of the world, so you know instead of the European view as viewed as normal, right? He takes the African view of the world as normal, <laughs> and London becomes the strange, exotic place that readily reveals its deficiencies. It sounds—I right? mean, it and sounds so, brilliant.
2: I mean, just just reading about it and your descriptions of it just sounds so clever.
3: I think it's really clever, and I think that. Overall, he uses satire and farce to really show human beings, no matter what their skin color, are very, very much alike, especially in their transgressions. Right? Um, He shows, you know, people in colonial Britain, you know, easily think that London, that sorry, that Africa is this place of immorality and irrationality (laughs) and impiety. But you know, Merriman Labor walks around London and shows that all those things are. You can can be seen any day there in the heart of the British Empire. So it really – and it's quite – I also admire – that he rejects this idea of a racial hierarchy that was so um, prevalent in that day, or especially in the late 19th century and even into the early 20th century. And he really asserts his right as a citizen of the world to speak his mind and describe the world as he sees it. Mm -hmm. So I, I personally think it's a remarkable book that's highly underestimated.
2: I was thinking, you know, Ambrose Bierce would have loved him. Um there, there's yeah there, there you know, and I was thinking, wow, what a great dinner that would be. Uh Twain's still alive, I think. Yes, he is. Or just or he just died. But Twain, Kipling, Bierce, and Merriman Labor, that actually would be a really interesting party.
3: Yes, it would be. <laughs> it would be. He was very much a man of his age and um for for better and worse. Yeah. But he was uh he was a He was curious. He was funny. He wanted to know and understand, and he wanted to demonstrate to the world the value and purpose and um, dignity of black people. And he felt that if he could show that, the world would have to Mm -hmm. see it.
2: But it flops. (laughs) and he Correct. needs he needs to make money and he will not go back to sierra leone he will not go back to freetown i mean he could have gone done that he still he had his law degree he could have gone back and been a really well he could have even still had an international um reputation in a, in a in a different way uh but he won't yes. he won't do it
3: he won't do it um and partly i think that's because he feels that he didn't accomplish what he set out to accomplish <laughs> but i also for me i think there's partly a mystery there as well mm-hmm. was there were there other things holding him in london um unfortunately he left very few letters no personal letters all the letters that i found were you know, business letters and that kind of thing. So there's no there's no diary. There was no diary for me to refer to, no personal letters for me to dig into his emotional life. So, if there were emotional things, connections, you know, relationships with people that were holding him in London, I don't know what they what they were. Um, but those are, of course, always possibilities, um as well as the idea that he wanted to go back. When he went back to Sierra Leone, he intended to go back, having accomplished his mm-hmm. his dream, his goal of being a recognized writer on par with white writers in, in the empire, in mm-hmm. the center of empire.
2: He, uh, as seeking for some way of, of, of earning sufficient income to remain in London, he starts the West African Annual. What is that? And how does he get in trouble with that? I mean, first of all, he gets in trouble with someone else. Yes. So how does that?
3: So let work? me talk about. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Let me talk about that a second. The um, so in uh, before he went to London, he actually made the money to go to London originally by writing a guidebook to Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. the Handbook of Sierra Leone. When he had two editions of it it made money um people really liked it and so he saw it as a kind of a little bit of a cash cow you know <laughs> it wasn't the literary work that he wanted to do but it made money and because his family didn't his family were among the elite in Freetown but they were not they did not have a lot of money so money was excuse me was crucial to him and so he was always keen to figure out You know, strategies for making sure he had some income. So he imagined the West African annual as kind of a bigger version. This would be a guidebook to all of West Africa. Mm -hmm. And of course, lots of Europeans are going there. So you can imagine, you know, guidebooks still make money today, I think. Mm -hmm. So he really saw this as a possibility. While he is trying to work on that. And he actually got some interest in it. There was a cabinet member who was supporting him. Ultimately, a uh, press um, was ready to partner with him on it. So he's in a good, good position with it. When he gets a letter from a friend of a friend living in Sierra Leone, who has a um, gripe with a London tailor about a couple of suits. And so Merriman Labour says, look, I'll go talk to them. I know these guys. They're going to advertise in my book and we'll work this out. So Merriman Labor goes and talks to the Curzon brothers, Taylors, and they agree they will make a set of suits for this friend of a friend named J.C. Cole, and uh, then ev- everything will be settled. But uh, Cole – doesn't want the new suits, he says he wants the cash. Well, we're only talking about three odd pounds. And so Merriman Labor is saying, is thinking, look, for me to pursue a lawsuit against these tailors is going to cost way more than three pounds. So he decides, without telling Cole, that he will have Curzon make the suits for him and he will pay Cole back the cash. Mm-hmm. He doesn't pay Cole back the cash, and when Cole finds out from somebody else, from Curzon, he is naturally outraged and very upset and reports Merriman Labor to uh, Lincoln's Inn. Now, had Merriman Labor simply paid Cole the money at that point, none of the terrible things that would happen would have happened. Um, Merriman Labor's mother lived not far from Cole. She could have paid him the three-odd pounds, but Merriman Labor's – vanity or ego got the best of him he was so upset that cole was defaming him in freetown he decided to make him wait for his money oh, well in making that decision right yeah um that lincoln in uh ultimately reviewed what had happened um decided that so Merriman Labor legally could have used the money. He should have told Cole in advance. He could have used the money. That was legal um, if he had uh, a reasonable expectation of repaying it. Mm-hmm. So that was the decision that Lincoln's in had to determine, and they determined that he didn't have a reasonable expectation. They decided that his actions were dishonorable, and they disbarred him.
2: They disbarred him um, over three pounds.
3: Three pounds. And this was um, – Nobody expected him to be disbarred over this. Um, it, disbarment was uh, usually reserved for just the most serious and the most public kinds of uh, transgressions. And um, so it was a very, very um, harsh uh, decision that they made. Um, certainly what he did was foolish and deserved a rebuke, um, but disparment was excessive. Yeah. Was excessive, um, and I also think I don't say this in the book, but I do think that you know um, the reason Merriman Labor made the decision to use Coles uh, um, to have Curzon make the suits. I think he was displaying the kind of paternalism that he had learned and seen growing up in a British colony, right? Hmm. He imagined that Cole was probably of a lower educational background and social status and didn't quite understand the situation. So he, as someone of a higher status, would make the decision for him. And of course, that's the basic premise of colonialism, right? Uh Um, Europeans will make decisions for Africa. Africans because they are, um, you know, so-called, you know, so-called superior civilization. So I think the kind of um, uh, paternalism inherent in colonialism, he reproduces in that poor decision-making uh, with Cole and Curzon.
2: It also sounds like he's just very irritated um, with Cole. Absolutely. But yeah. Um, yeah.
3: And he's angry, and he he's angry, and he makes a terrible terrible misjudgment.
2: This is all happening in 1914, right? Or is it before? 14 and 15. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah. During the war.
2: So there's yeah. so other events have now intervened. Um, yes. He actually gets a I was he gets a pretty good job uh, in the war effort, working for the uh, the royal as a royal engineers stores inspector. Um, Yes, it's pretty good. It's pretty good gig.
3: Very good gig. He's probably making good money. He's working at the Woolwich Arsenal in South London. Um, It is not you know, he's not uh, stuffing, uh, you know, shells with toxic materials as thousands of women were at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. So he was inspecting all kinds of whatever they were sending out to the troops. He was inspecting to make sure they were working. So it was a, it was a prestigious job, which means that whoever interviewed him recognized his talents. He'd already, you know, he was a clerk for the colonial secretary's office in Sierra Leone. So they really saw that he had skills and they, and they made use of them.
2: And and yet there's nothing really happy about the next four years. Um, There's a continuing is it a physical decline as well or i mean it, when, when does he first show uh, symptoms of tb
3: that happens um closer to um at least as far as we know 1919 okay. there was a report in the african telegraph that he is on the sick list they say mm-hmm. he's come down with a chill mm-hmm. so tb tuberculosis okay. Yeah, so tuberculosis at the time was uh, considered um, a poor person's disease, even though it was epidemic at the time with the overcrowding of the war. Um mm-hmm. You know, they thought they'd gotten it under control, but there was f- much more tuberculosis happening given the wartime conditions with food rationing and overcrowding and that kind of thing. But um, it was a shameful disease, huh. um, and people were afraid of people with TB. And so he didn't want people to know that he had it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he kind of – he really uh, keeps that a secret um, until, of course, the war ends, and then he eventually – must have spent all of his money on trying to be cured of TB because he ends up in the Lambeth uh, Workhouse Infirmary uh, tuberculosis unit in uh, in the summer of 1919.
2: And that's where he dies?
3: Yes. Okay. He dies at uh, 40, 42, 42 years old.
2: When is it he – as I said in the intro, he had changed his name to Olor uh, Magi. Um, when and and why do you think he did that
3: he changes his name after the disbarment Mm -hmm. and i think he was devastated by the disbarment he he took it i mean he was disbarred and he appealed it and he appealed it he took it to the highest court of the land and he was still uh the judgment was still against him um He felt completely betrayed by this country that he had loved. His faith in in British justice Mm -hmm. that I think he really had up until that point was completely shattered. And I think when he changes his name to Maji, he rejects entirely his British identity and probably for the first time in his life fully embraces an African identity as his central and sole identity personhood
2: and yet and yet uh his uncle i believe in his obituary for him has a very striking uh phrase uh, he could not be prevailed upon to be with his people yes that's yes really uh given what you just said uh adopting his african identity as his pre- pre- preeminent identity that's an interesting juxtaposition
3: Yes, and I think that they probably um, didn't know that he had changed his name. Probably they may not. not have known. Yeah, during the wartime, they may not have. I'm not sh- because they do not use that name in the obituary. Mm-hmm. They, in fact, use ABC Merriman Labor as his name in the obituary. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, also in the obituary, I wanted to mention too. His uncle never mentions his writing seriously. They say he he says that Merriman Labour dabbled in journalism. They never mentioned Britain's through Negro spectacles. I don't think his family understood his passion to be a writer. I think they wanted him to come home after he passed the bar to do his work, as you suggested, from Sierra Leone or some other West African country. Mm -hmm. Um, And they certainly felt his absence. I think they felt his absence as a kind of betrayal um the phrase certainly suggests that
2: yeah
3: it does doesn't it yeah yeah
2: um how did you discover him
3: you know i was working on um the dreadnought hoax virginia Woolf's participation in the dreadnought hoax where she and her brother and some friends dress up in blackface as mm-hmm. abyssinian princes mm-hmm. and get a tour of a british warship and I was wondering, well, surely there are Africans living in London at the time. What are are they thinking about this? So I just started doing searches for African writers, and then I found Britain's Through Negro Spectacles. And Hmm. once I read that, I I had to know more. I had to know more. And my first questions were of the most basic kind. Who was this man and what happened to him? Because – and that's what almost nine years ago, I guess – what we knew about him was limited to, you know, a column or a paragraph, you know, in a in a um, you know uh, an encyclopedia of important uh, Black British people. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that point, nobody even knew when or how he died. I mean, that's how limited the information was. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I just, because I was after a biography. Where's the biography? But there was none. And at first, I thought that it, it would be interesting to compare his life with Virginia Woolf's life. Uh-huh. For instance, I mean, they're contemporaries. And of course, she comes from a very literary family, and he is from a very journalistic family, too, in a way, but in West Africa without any of her connections. Uh the connection she has in London, but of course he could go to law school, and she women were not allowed to go to law school, so I thought it would be quite interesting to sort of compare um compare them, but it just it didn't work out because you know she has volumes and volumes of letters and yeah. diaries and other people writing to her, and there just wasn't the material there so he he took over <laughs> his life took over, and I decided I really wanted to be able to tell his story first, and that's what i that's what i did
2: so question leading to question leading to question where what, what what sort of was the final stage of questions that you began to ask about him and about uh his mentality uh the the way he saw things the way he yeah what were those what was the final stage of questions
3: you know i i was always trying to Uh, understand his perspective and to, I think one of the most important things about him is he definitely sees himself um, not as a victim, Mm -hmm. but as an actor, Mm -hmm. right? As somebody who can make a difference, who can make a change in the world. So my questions are, okay, I know how hardworking he is. I know, um, you know, how talented he is. Why doesn't he succeed? I mean, is this racial prejudice? Is mm-hmm. this, this lack of economic stability? Is this the disruptions of World War I? And, you know, as probably every historian discovers, it's all of these, right, in yeah. part. But I think ultimately uh, Britain's through Negro spectacles was too advanced for its time. Hmm. People couldn't really hear. They couldn't see his humor they couldn't hear what he had to say and i think now we are much more interested in voices from the margins Mm -hmm. and i think in the telling of his story i hope to really return this forgotten writer who was at the vanguard of african literature to his rightful place in history I, i think he he deserves it and his writing deserves it uh
2: writing a biography is a is a an odd experience i think um Having just done it myself, um, you uh, might see things about the person that you don't actually write down or learn things about the person that you don't write down. I mean, some people, of course, what Joyce Carol Oates refers to as hathography, um, they they come to hate the the subject. You obviously don't hate your subject. Um, What have you learned from him that you couldn't necessarily put into the book or that you couldn't necessarily articulate in – In the book?
3: You know, I think what you learn writing about somebody like Merriman Labor who's been forgotten Mm -hmm. is, first of all, how hard it is to uncover this kind of a story. I mean, biographers put in the years. <laughs> yeah. But when you have somebody who doesn't leave much and what he leaves is spread all over the place and you have to be so inventive to try to figure out where you can find material um you know you uh you realize that these are important stories that that are easily lost. And so one thing that I I know it's probably obvious but I really more than ever value our libraries and archives, because (laughs) this is, I mean, and really, and a lot of these, I ran into a lot of dead ends. For example, I'm um, curious about how you
2: found stuff and where where, you just, where'd where'd you find stuff? How did you find stuff?
3: Well, uh, so one place that I went was, of course, the National Archives at Kew. And I'm looking through the colonial records because he is a, you know, a clerk for the colonial secretary. So you're able to find, you know, and they keep good records. So I'm able to find letters, you know, and other, you know, when he's applying for leaves of absence and things like that. But um, several times I came across an entry. So they have a register that tells you what's. Available And then separately, you can find a copy of the actual letter or whatever it is. So many times researching him, I'd be in the register, I'd find something where he was writing a letter for some purpose. And in the margin was a, it was a blue stamp, but I see it in my mind as a red stamp. Um, and it says, destroyed by statute Hmm. so many of his documents were destroyed simply because archives can't keep everything Mm -hmm. and they have to make decisions about what they can keep Um, when i was uh trying to find out about his death and his illness i was at the london metropolitan archives and um his uh medical records should have been there but the box with his medical records had been destroyed in uh by water because there had been a leak and a flood in the um in the archive
2: darn floods
3: so those were (laughs) gone so those were gone Um, on the other hand i had sort of great moments lots of great moments for instance um i wrote to um uh You know, I would write to archivists and say, oh, my gosh, Al, I wrote to so many archivists and said, do you happen to have anything on Merriman Labor? And sometimes (laughs) I would get lucky and they would send me the actual letters um, that they they had. But um, one time I got particularly lucky – I'm very fortunate that my husband is a historian, and one day we were at the National Archives. It was about four in the afternoon. We'd been there since morning. I was exhausted, and I'm like, let's go home. Um, I'm tired, and Tim's like, you sit here and drink your tea. I'm just going to go look one more place, and so we went back to the archive, and he found a record of um, Merriman Labor's disbarment appeal. That had been misfiled. Oh, so wow. he had looked two files over and had found it, and you know, nobody w- was ever going to find that. You know, that was that was a stroke of genius. Yeah. But also, and you've probably had this experience—you get to know your characters, and you can start um, anticipating things. So, uh, and I don't know if you use digital archives. I fortunately, the British Library has been amazing. I've had access to their digital archives of African newspapers. Mm-hmm. But I could never find his obituary, and I I was certain his uncle would publish an obituary. I just knew it existed, but could not find it through the electronic database. So Tim and I headed off to Collindale, and that's where the newspapers used to be in the British Library. And we just sat down in this dark basement on these hard seats, and we started rolling through the microfilm and, you know— Minute by minute, hour by hour, and we we found it on the microfilm. So part of the problem with the um, old newspapers being digitized is that the print isn't particularly good sometimes, right. and so the uh, they can't read it. The the um, software can't can't actually read it. So if you're gonna do research from you know paper newspapers, sometimes you just have to be able to see a picture of of the actual thing to yeah. really know what's there.
2: Well, those those are good war stories. Then that's one of those days in the archives where you, uh, whether you find something or not, that's a hard day in the archives. Uh, It's where you stagger out into fresh air and really need a drink. Um,
3: Yes, exactly. I'm not talking tea either. Well, <laughs> right. well and one of the most memorable days was the day that we found the entry for his uh, death certificate mm-hmm. because we hadn't I had guessed that he died in 1918 or 1919 because he up until then he was publishing a lot in Sierra Leone newspapers letters you know things like that and it just stopped you mm-hmm. know and we had been told by somebody that he had moved to California you know we'd been told these various stories um, but I I thought, he he It stops after nineteen nineteen that 's the last report he dies. I was certain he died in nineteen nineteen almost certain mm-hmm. as certain as you can be in these situations. But I thought, oh, he must have died in the in the flu epidemic, right mm-hmm. So many millions of people yeah. died um, obviously, I was wrong about that, but I was right about the fact that he died the summer of nineteen nineteen and so you know Tim and I are sitting there and we 're looking at it, and we are you know we're like oh my god we found it we hug each (laughs) other we're so happy and then one split second later we were practically in tears because he died for us, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, we had him alive up until that point. And then finding his death certificate, knowing he had died young, when we had such aspirations for him, he became a part of our family, really, for for all of these years, that it was really, it was, we really needed a drink after that when he found, when we found that, that he had died without achieving the success that he had worked for so diligently. Um throughout
2: his life, so in um when we were talking before we started recording, I said that in 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 ways this reminded me of a, a classic micro history, and uh, as I said in the intro it's a it seems a very small and inconspicuous window uh but small and inconspicuous windows can look out on really interesting gardens uh what do you believe uh, what would you say that uh, Merriman labor what does his life provide us a a glimpse of through that window.
3: I think we see a story about people, someone who desires to be a writer, who's looking for success, who endures all kinds of obstacles because of race, because of money, because of history in achieving that. I think we also see, I think we have to ask ourselves, You know, so many people of color, are, even today, are saying, look, we prove ourselves through our dignity and our accomplishments. And I think as a white writer, I have to see in his life story, that did not lead him to success. Um, And you start understanding (laughs) why people of color get so frustrated and get so angry. And wonder if simply having talent accomplishments is enough, right? How do you fight this kind of systemic uh, racism? Um, but at the same time, I, while he was so shattered by being disbarred, by being treated so wrongly, I never got the sense that he ever gave up. And I think this is, you know, I I talk about it, uh, the indomitable life of ABC Merriman Labor. And for me, he really is kind of this hero of this resilient spirit, even though he was never recognized or rewarded. Um, So I, you know, as I say in the book, I think I see him as a kind of patron saint of the resilient spirit. He is really a remarkable man. And I think the other thing that I see, too, as a writer myself Is how important it is to tell your story because you don't know when people are going to be able to hear your story. I mean we have examples of plenty of writers who have told their stories and no one could really hear them during their lifetimes. But later, they're able to see the value of those stories. So I think it's really important to do the work even though you don't know what's going to happen.
2: My guest today has been Daniel Jones. She's author of An African in Imperial London, The Indomitable Life of ABC Merriman Labor. Daniel, thank you so much for talking with me.
3: Al, this was terrific. I had a great time and thank you so much.